We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. It's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code Dace. Steve Dace here for Freedom Fest, the biggest and most successful liberty event of the year, attracting thousands of people, including hundreds of liberty-oriented speakers, think tanks, nonprofits, and sponsors. This year's Freedom Fest is taking place in Las Vegas, July 19th through the 22nd. Exploring new frontiers is the theme of this year's festivities and includes sessions on technology, the liberty movement, politics, investing, business, education, healthy living, and much more. John Stossel, Lisa Kennedy, Dan Bongino, Deneen Burrell, Steve Forbes, Jim Rogers, and even Star Trek's own William Shatner will keynote the event. Register today for $100 off the regular rate by using code CRTV100 at the checkout. You won't want to wait, though. This code only works for the first 100 registrations that use it. Freedom Fest 2017, coming to Las Vegas, July 19th through the 22nd. It'll be here before you know it. Go to FreedomFest.com for more information and to sign up. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Daniel Horowitz is going to take us inside politics coming up here in about 15 minutes. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. But I want to begin by something I noticed yesterday when I got home. There is a third car in my driveway. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And seeing it there kind of rocked my world a little bit. Because... My oldest, who was uh, my original princess, is about to turn 16. And I got home yesterday, and sitting in our driveway was a third car. But symbolically, it meant, at least for me, it meant a lot more than just, hey, there's an extra car in our driveway. We then got in the car. She drove me around in it a little bit. And I hate to be a cliche. Her youngest, her younger sister, Zoe, like whenever she is about to cross a new um, threshold 
benchmark in life and growing up, before she's about to do it, she'll look at me, Zoe will look at me and says, Dad, I don't want you to come. And I'll say, why? And she goes, because you're going to give me that look. And I'm like, what look is that? And she goes, ask Anna. She'll tell you what look it is. It's that look, oh, they're growing up. That look. You're going to give me that look. And I tried my best to treat her as an adult, operating a motor vehicle. This is a huge step into adulthood, right? That kind of independence. But I could not help yesterday but have that look on my face. And I, I bring it up in the context of this program because it's an example of why we do what we do in the way that we do it. I know the way we do this is not for everybody, which is a bit of a dilemma because after all, I'm in an industry called, you guessed it, broadcasting. And yet, I do my best to point people to a narrow gate every episode. Some episodes I do it better than others. Some episodes I don't do it well at all. But, but the, the vision is that, is to point people to a narrow gate and using broadcasting as a tool to do that. And, you know, when we bought this house about 10 and a half years ago, that we live in now, we could not afford it. We had to, we had to stretch. We were house poor for about a year, as they like to say. Now, the reason we did this is I had read some industry stuff. We were getting ready to buy a new home, and I'd read some industry stuff that there was a there could be a massive housing bubble coming, which meant we might be stuck in the house that we were in at the time, which would not have been big enough for a, th- a three child family. So Amy and I made the decision to go ahead. We looked at the facts took a bit of a gamble that that analysis was going to turn out to be true. And in 2006, we kind of stretched, we stretched a few pennies a little bit to make this house work. And then of course, two years later, that bubble turned out to be prophetic and it was one of the better decisions we've ever made. But when we moved into this house, Anna was in the second grade, still thought literally everything I said was from my lips to God's ears. Zoe was not yet potty trained. <laughs> Noah was not yet born. He was living in mommy's tummy at the time. And now we sit here ten and a half years later. Noah's about to, and I quote, hit double digits, as he likes to tell me. All right, that's coming up this Friday. He's having some friends over for a massive sleepover, which means we're going to play video games all night long and nobody goes to sleep. That's typically what it means at that age. Zoe will be 12 this summer, and Anna is now driving the old man around town. Many of the people that do what I do for a living that have bigger names than I do. I've had a chance to get to meet several of them, get to know a few of them, and to varying degrees, I think they're great people and true patriots. But I don't know many of them that go home to this perspective I've gone home to for the last 10 years. Because there's frankly not too many people doing this that are 42 years old or younger. Many of them are 10 years older than that or 20 or 30 years. 
think Michael Savage is pushing 80. And that just gives you a different perspective. It gives you maybe one more of a short-term one. I mean, Amy and I had different perspectives as a married couple before we had children than after. There's just certain decisions you don't get to make when you have other people you're making decisions for. But when you're young and you don't have children yet and you're first married, you get to you get to make more selfish decisions. And we'll get to make more selfish decisions again after the kids are out of the house. But going home to that every night is what has driven me to imperfectly do what we have done. To not to not join cults of personality. To to not become shills for a political party. To not make to not make our number one focus material or financial success. In fact, even before we were we made the announcement we were moving to CRTV, Aaron, on a, how often do I even ask you? Like affiliates? I, like once every four or five months, I remember, I forget to ask that, and I'll send an email to Salem. Hey, what's the update? Mm-hmm. I just... I, that's just not our focus. Now, we want, to, we want to reach as many people as we can. I want to be as successful as we can possibly be. But I don't have the luxury of focusing on those things because of responsibilities I go home to that are a reminder of what the main thing is. Because I, I have had to face in my home after every episode, if it's my last show, my last chance to have a platform to stand up for what I believe is right. And they pull the plug on me after this episode. When I go home, and if my kids inherit a country that goes to hell, they're going to ask me, hey, Dad, when you had a chance to stand up for something, what did you do? Well, kids, you know, I thought you'd want to live in a bigger house. I thought you'd want to drive a nicer car. I thought you'd want to have that, you know, that extension or that extra vacation. So I, I didn't do much, you know, I... I did what one of my peers told me last year I was supposed to do, which was give the audience what it wants. That's my job. They're going to look at me and they're going to say thanks for nothing. I think Rush Limbaugh is a great man. And my job and career would not be possible without his success. But I'm just telling you, a guy who's on his fourth marriage and has never had kids, there's just certain aspects Certain perspectives he just won't have access to. He cannot. It's not possible. Sort of like the great irony that Oprah has become this icon of, 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 of women in our era. And she's never been a wife and she's never been a mom. What are the, which are the two primary roles a woman fulfills in life? Like the two primary roles a, a man fulfills is father and husband. And yet she has, she has of her own free will, which she's free to do, chosen to say no to those roles. But yet she is now going to be a spokesperson for her gender. Explain this to me. Because she doesn't understand what many of you who are wives and mothers, regardless of your politics, what you have to go through, she has not faced those things. Neither is guys like Rush Limbaugh. Just hasn't. I don't live on my own island. I don't make $200 million a year. I wish I did. I would love to be tempted by the, the things that Rush is tempted by, but I'm not. I'm tempted by these things. All around us in our culture today is the temptation to betray what we know is right for the popularity of the moment. But moments are fleeting. 
the mob is fickle. And as I came home last night and saw a third car parked in my driveway, it hit home with me one more time. The most fleeting moment of them all is my one chance to, as best as I can, set the right example for those kids. And that's going to be my priority, whether it grows our affiliate list or our listenership or not. You're listening to Steve Dace. Class, meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. All right, let's go inside politics. Daniel Horowitz is here from Conservative Review. It is good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Hey, great to be with you. Never rest for the weary. Nor for the wicked, either. Um, along those lines, I, I've got to ask you about this. Okay, uh, According to the official White House schedule, President Trump was 20 minutes into a daily intelligence briefing when he tweeted, quote, my daughter Ivanka has been treated unfairly by Nordstrom's. She is a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible exclamation point. Your reaction to that? My reaction is I've literally not had time with my kids and family for several weeks because I am trying to – I seem to be the only one that I guess has the knowledge and the background to make the case for American sovereignty and to defend what Trump is rightfully doing. And when he does things like this, what it does is take gold and smear it in feces. Uh, So now everything that is – you know, even if it's the most righteous – um, you know, initiatives that, that should have been taken a long time ago and it's worthwhile to defend and to pursue, it gets smeared with this type of stuff. So it makes it so much harder for us. And, and that's why I think we just all have to keep a certain sense of independence and just call the balls and strikes as we see them. Here's why I think this matters politically, because these are the sorts of things. Are we on day five now of, of the Kelly Conway uh, unspoken of terrorist massacre, fake news story debate that, that the media just won't let go? Because there's a certain aspect of, the, of, of, of his persona that, you, that can just get you bogged down in the weeds one way or the other. But, but this is something you and I talked about after the election. I think this stuff matters, doesn't matter to people until it does. I don't think it matters to people until it gets in the way of, uh, or, or the perception is it's getting in the way that he can't do what he was told or he told us he was going to do because he's too busy doing this stuff instead. You know what I'm saying? And so that's where you're in the middle of, 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 of really the first political, meaningful political fight of your presidency. On, on on the issue that launched your candidacy was one of the deciding issues of this last election. And it didn't take long for some rogue judge somewhere to decide that uh, they've got jurisdiction. The Constitution does not grant him. So you're in the middle of your first substantive battle as a president. 
And and yet this is what you spend some of your political capital on. And then you open yourself up to being to to being delegitimized by your opposition because you go there in the middle of a daily intelligence briefing. If this were if the shoe were on the other foot, if this was somebody if this was a Democrat that was tweeting these things out during a daily intelligence briefing, what would we what would everybody in our industry, what would every show, every column, every Fox News segment today, what would it be about, Daniel? Oh my gosh! Uh, look at this man. This is a man child in the in, in the Oval Office. He doesn't deserve the dignity of presidency. Yes, and see that's where that's why I think if you care about this guy's presidency, if you want it to be successful, you need to speak out about this kind of stuff because this is the stuff that will undo him. This stuff. It's not going to be the news. The news media has been defeated. The news media has been defeated. They're not irrelevant. They're just impotent. Those are two different things. They're, they're, they're relevant. They just have no power. They're, they're defeated. This is the stuff that the average American, if they, if they, if, 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 when, if unemployment doesn't severely turn around in a year or two, if the gas prices spike, you know where I'm going with this. If, 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 if optimism doesn't, uh, if the, once the honeymoon phase is over, if it's not morning in America again, this is the kind of thing that people don't care about when things are going well that suddenly are going to really tick them off. No, exactly. The thing with Trump is this. He's unique. He's going to do things that are very different than what people are used to. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. And I think a lot of people want something very different. But when you have things that on the face of it people know are wrong, it automatically taints the other stuff. Yeah, I don't know. This immigration stuff kind of seems heavy-handed. I mean, he's talking about loving Putin all day and all his other authoritarian stuff. So maybe this is wrong, too. And that's the problem. It's not just going to take down his presidency. It's going to take down our issues. That's exactly right. Like, I, like to me, if I, and I've said this on our show before, if I was a Democrat at the time of Lewinsky, I would have been furious with Bill Clinton. You, you mean to tell me that you risked, ev- the, you risked your entire presidency on turning the word humidor into a verb with a troubled White House intern? Really? You, you put all of us, all of our issues, those of us that are out there trying to advance the cause that helped get you elected, you put all of us at risk with the risk that you took. And that's, that's what I thought you just touched on. That's the point I'm trying to make, which is this is funny now until it's not. And when will it not be funny? If it's, if people perceive that it gets in the way of, of him actually doing his job. And, and when, when this stuff is going on now, it's, it's, you know, we all joked, oh, it's 3 a.m., you know, you know, who has Trump's phone? But if we're going to do this stuff in the middle of intelligence briefings, I used to say during the campaign all the time, I never believed he wanted to be the president. I believed he wanted to win, didn't want to be it. I, the Donald Trump I used to know had no, has no interest in entertaining the organization of American states for six hours on an April Thursday. No, no interest, none. All right, so I was always concerned of loss of focus, things of that nature. Daniel, it's February 9th, okay? We're not even a month into this, and we're using daily intelligence briefings to tweet to Nordstrom's. That's not a good sign, man. I'm sorry. It's not a good sign. No, it isn't. And I know some of the defenders will say, look, it's worked until now. But I think you noted that there's going to be a tipping point. And that tipping point is the time that the American people start viewing him as the incumbent, as the status quo. Mm -hmm. His entire brand that has inoculated him from the typical criticism is that he was the guy to flush what people don't like, which is the status quo. But once he's there long enough to be the status quo and he doesn't deliver, then the stuff will start hurting him. Yeah, I mean – 
all presidents, regardless of party, ideology, etc. All presidents spend most of their presidencies on the defensive, eventually. That's just the nature of the job. Stuff happens to you you cannot control. Uh, things, are, things are dictated to you by opponents that you can't just maneuver. It, it's, it's, why, it's why I don't think Donald Trump can out-clever Vladimir Putin. It's because Putin doesn't have an organized opposition that he, has to, that he has to respect on any level at all like Donald Trump does. He can just, by hook or by crook, impose. He can change the rules in the middle of the game. He can cancel the game. He can rein the game out. He can call in second. He can call a, a doubleheader game if he wants. You can't, it, it, our presidents don't have that kind of power. Even if they go hook or by crook like Barack Obama, their power is still limited compared to most chief executives that they will go up, to, go up against. And so the, the job in and of itself forces a defensive posture which is why you've got to cash as many checks or and deposit, make as many deposits into the American people early on in your presidencies as you possibly can. No, which is why I actually supported Trump in going full bore with some of these executive orders. I agree. Yes. And now waiting. But here you sit and, you know, you tainted in feces, then it doesn't matter when you do it. People are going to turn against you. All right. So the executive orders. And the, and the court battle, that's where I want to go next. Because I, I think a major mistake is being made here. And I want to find out if you agree with me or not. And we'll do that with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Of principles, Steve Dace. Back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network, taking us inside politics. Let's table the um, immigration executive orders for a second because this is the shortest segment of the hour, and I want to make sure we have enough time next segment to get into these without being interrupted. A couple things I want to ask you about as far as the vice president is concerned. He tweeted out a video earlier today that I thought was really, really well done political stagecraft. And it's about 45 seconds. And it's Senator Chuck Schumer and it, uh, on television advocating for a refugee ban for national security reasons. And underneath it, uh, the, his, Pence has had his graphic people there at uh, the Naval Observatory where he hangs out. Right, 2015, Obama is president. And it's Chuck Schumer all for a refugee ban for national security purposes. And then it fast forwards to 2017. Trump is president and he's up there with the cavalcade of victims and how terrible and immoral and everything this is. I thought that was an excellent job of pulling their pants down. No, that's exactly. I think this is where Mike Pence's experience in typical politics actually helps. This is the good part of it. The bad part of it is he's not as bold on a lot of things, but the good part of it is he understands that you need to stay on message. And instead of pulling your own pants down in front of the camera, you pull down your opponent's pants. Speaking of staying on message, on Sunday, Mike Pence said to George Stephanopoulos on national television, that he never discussed, even though President Trump, he says, asked him to take point in helping to vet this Supreme Court choice. 
that President Trump, that, that he, their Vice President Pence said he never asked Neil Gorsuch specifically about Roe versus Wade. You buying that? Do you really believe that that is either an incredulous lie to me or an incredulous act of political malfeasance? What's your view? Um, I would say that he probably never got a commitment from him that he would absolutely overturn Roe v. Wade at the first proper opportunity that comes before him was standing. Meaning he, he might have said, is it an abomination? Yes, it was. But would he overturn it is a very different question. And I, it, it would not surprise me that he commitment because this is frankly where the republicans have been for the last 50 years um in choosing judicial nominees they they, they just don't do what it takes do you think you're, are you saying you think gorsuch told him flat out that he couldn't guarantee that he'd overturn roe or either that or i don't think that they asked him for that i don't think that they I don't, I don't think they cared enough and i think the people around him care more about the chevron doctrine or campaign finance laws or criminal justice that's what i think how is that possible? How, how is it possible, given what Mike Pence has said and done on the life issue, that President Trump stood up there during the campaign and boldly said, hey, I want to, I want to appoint justices that could overturn Roe. How is it possible they didn't ask him? How is that even possible? Because there's no constituency on the political scene for that. Um, there is no social conservative uh, wing of the party anymore, not on a, not on a professional inside the beltway level it just doesn't exist like it existed during the bush years he just gave a massive platform to the march for life they had a half million people go down there that's not yeah, a constituency it, it, you know it's like the people that say they're culturally christian you know what i mean it's it's they're culturally pro-life but but are you going to overturn roe v wade is a very different question that i just don't think they care enough about they they it's the same thing everyone was for repealing obamacare until no one was for it I mean, it's a talking point. So you said they they lied to all these people. They have no. You don't believe they have any plans of following through on this? Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, they, they don't have plans on overturning Obergefell, which was a year and a half ago. Certainly, something that was forty years ago. They have no intention of overturning. I mean, it's it's a sad state of affairs. But I think Clarence Thomas is the only guaranteed vote. Maybe Alito, maybe not. That's not that's not a warm fuzzy. <laughs> I no, I mean, I want people. To I was rooting. I was rooting for incredulous lie. <laughs> I, look, this is why I'm so into it's judicial reform or bust because you will never get what we want by playing the conventional uh, judicial game. We are so f we are down much more than the pa Patriots were down 25 points in the third quarter. I mean, we're down 50 points in the fourth quarter. It's just not happening. It's not happening. We don't have the votes. You see with the immigration stuff, the lower courts, it's not going to get there. Um, and that's why we just need to take it away from the courts and put it back in the, in the state legislatures. How does a guy who, who claims to be as committed to life as Pence not ask that question then? Forget the all the things you said about the system, you know I agree with, and I've written and spoken on many of these same topics along the lines that you have. But just quickly before we go to this break, how does, on a personal level, where's his own personal level of conviction then? The same place where it stood on the homosexual agenda. More up with people with Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace.
don't mind us, there's only the future of the country at stake. You're listening to Steve Dace. Hey, quick postscript on the whole Nordstrom's tweeting thing. We should also mention it's now an official... It, it actually became an official White House position this afternoon. Um, Sean Spicer, during his uh, his, his daily uh, White House press briefing, said that uh, Nordstrom's decision to discontinue Ivanka's brand is a, quote, direct attack on the president's policies and her name, unquote. It checks out. Yeah, seems legit. Definitely. This yeah. is fine. This is fine. Uh, in fact, we're going to rename this segment. Uh, we, when we go to CRTV in, uh, on the 27th, it's going to evolve from uh, inside politics to this is fine with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. So yesterday they had the tribunal in front of the uh, notoriously liberal Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and, and forget the ruling and everything else. I, I don't care. I really don't care what, the, what, what they rule. Because to me, Daniel, the fact that the Trump administration was in a court of appeals anyway, granting the premise that they have jurisdiction over something the Constitution grants them no jurisdiction over, is a loss. We already lost. Lost no matter what the opinion is, it's a loss. Because they will they will use that jurisdiction against us later. Am I wrong? Oh my gosh. I mean, this is essentially my post out today. We have lost no matter what. The whole thing is completely lost. Here's We have ceded 90% of the ground. We have ceded the fact that the courts have jurisdiction over it. We have ceded the fact that there that there's a First and 14th Amendment right um, to uh, uh, some sort of foreign nationals to affirmatively immigrate. We've, ace- we've ceded the right that he can't take away um, green cards, which is explicitly in Section 212F. They said that they're only doing it for non-immigrant visas now because of the courts, and even then the courts are attacking it. And then even then, the whole debate is how much evidence could you demonstrate that there are a specific number of Somalis or Yemenis or Iranians have committed terror attacks? They've literally – what part of plenary power don't they understand? The president could shut it off no matter what. They've, the whole discussion – is flipped on its head, and this is a microcosm for what's happened the last 50 to 70 years in the courts. This is why we will never win until we go before the American people and say, at best, the courts are equal to the other branches. But we have given them sole and final arbiter status over our society. Yeah, they're, I, not, they're not even the strongest branch now. They are the superior They're branch the only branch. They're, they're exactly. The only, Think about this. If you have the ability to to rewrite the Constitution openly, nakedly, you, you could throw out 200 years of settled case law, settled – I'm just off the top of my head. I'm quoting 1950s cases over no conceivable area of policy. Does a legislative branch have more control? The courts have no province in this entire discussion. I mean again and again, an uninterrupted chain of cases. You cannot have more settled law than that. And they just throw it out. They they are judge, jury, and executioner of our society. I want to g- give your audience something no one else has probably ever heard. Um, Samuel Chase was one of the early judicial strongmen. Him along with Marshall, um, he he instituted judicial review. And, and Jefferson wanted to impeach him, but it, he wasn't successful. But even Chase, what he said about judicial review is he would only strike down things that were manifestly against the Constitution as originally – conceived and that broke the social compact okay now 
fast forward to what's going on now. The courts are breaking the social compact. What a social compact means is that the government is there to protect the people and their sovereignty. Immigration has to be done by the people's representatives. It can't, by definition, be done by, by the courts like what Scalia calls social transformation without representation. And yet they are using judicial review for what Sam Chase, the pioneer, said is exactly the opposite of what you use it for. There is no limit to this, and until our movement talks about judicial reform, this is all a waste of time because this is going to go to the Supreme Court, and guess what? You know, you know where Anthony, sure. Anthony Kennedy is on I mean, this. this. This is going to nullify – two things are happening here. One, it is not these dumb protests. It is not the fake pro- it is not the fake astroturf opposition of Democrats in Congress or what Elizabeth Warren says about Jeff Sessions. No, those aren't the things that are going to undo the Trump presidency. The courts will. And they're going to nullify every attempt he every attempt he makes to keep his promises whether he makes one attempt or 100. They will be used to try and nullify them all. Why? Because they have been used along these lines for decades and all we have done is accept it and fall back. And that leads me to the next point. This is a setup to eventually create an affirmative right for anybody to immigrate to America. That's where this is going to go. Just as they wiped away the when life begins, they wiped away what a marriage is, they wiped away the idea that uh, illegal aliens have have or they created the idea that illegal aliens have a right to taxpayer money. They wiped away the definitions of state exchanges and mandates. They wiped away the definition of eminent domain. The next thing to do is wipe away the definition of a border. And that's that's exactly what's happening. And it will happen very, very soon. Mark my words, which I think begs the question, what exactly could the courts do? I, I, this ought to be a game show. And I'm going to do this game show on CRTV. What what could the courts do? That we would say no to. What, what feckless, wicked, uh, irresponsible, immoral edict, unconstitutional edict could they decree that we would finally say, <clears throat> we appreciate your opinion. Uh, you have a right to your own opinion, but not to your own jurisdiction. What, what could they do that we would refuse? What could it be? At, at this point, unless we create a movement against it, absolutely nothing. Consider this. If if Congress if the House passes a law of four hundred thirty five to nothing, Senate passes it one hundred nothing, President signs it into law, and let's say that law stands for one hundred fifty years, is that the law of the land? Well, the courts could just come at a flick of, with the flick of a wrist and nullify it in the mind in the erroneous prevailing political legal thought. Okay, now hold that thought. Um, now a court could then come along and redefine sexuality or marriage or whatever, and then. Forget about the other branches of government. They can't fight back because they're, they're evidently nothing. But even a subsequent court, which is God-given, um, evidently can't turn it over. So, I mean, this is a perfect scam that it is more the law of the land than the law of the land. Um, you know, they could say that two members of each family, in order to foster diversity and tolerance, need to get a sex change operation. And Mitch McConnell will say, well, well can we get, hey, can we get a religious conscience clause with that? That's what they'd say. <laughs> That's our answer. Can we get a religious... You guys can absolutely just bugger yourselves out in the streets as long as we get a religious conscience clause. We're okay with that. That's their answer to everything. More or less. Daniel, thank you very much, man. We appreciate it. We'll come back and uh, have some commentary on what you just heard here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace.
time to fight is now always the Steve Day Show. Let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. Because he brings us the good news every Wednesday night here on this show. So, Todd, what did he say that stood out to you? Well, I take it in total... And in terms of his prophetic sensibilities, when you lay them against the prophetic sensibilities of one other person that kept coming to mind, the simple truth is they both can't be right. And that is Daniel versus Bannon. There's no way Bannon would let this happen on his watch. He would walk, go back to Breitbart, start making fun of Trump. He wants no part of the reality that he's talking about. And it is, isn't it well within Steve Bannon to, to push for exactly the kind of torpedoing of all the nonsense precedents that we've had in the past. Now, of course, he has to convince uh, Donald Trump and company. But the, the world, if if he truly is the Darth Vader in that White House right now, there's no by, way he stands by and allows to happen, if he has any say in it, what Daniel's talking about. There is no Darth Vader in the White House. I think that's all, that's agate prop from the left. I, this is a mercurial guy. This is going to be the Politburo, guys, in the in the mid to late eighties. It's it is going to be palace intrigue every day. It's, it's Aaron. It's going to be like those uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, mm-hmm. where they where they rank every day. There's a new ranking of where you rank in popularity in the seventh grade. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Steve Bannon's number. Steve Bannon was number two two weeks ago. Got his executive order. Then Ivanka came up. Yeah, then he, now he's 25. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be that mercurial. It's going to be that capricious. There are no shadow presidencies. It's the last person I talked to. It's what I saw on the shows. In other words, it's going to be who the man actually is. That's not going to change. Never was going to change. Never was going to change. That's why you hoped. That's why we put so much emphasis on who his cabinet appointments were, because they're the ones that will do most of the governing around here. And that's why they were even more important than they would be under a typical president. Right. And next hour, we're going to be listening to uh, clips from uh, the Ted Cruz-Bernie Sanders debate. And Bernie Sanders, I mean, he is he is a master. When he gets backed into a corner, he always starts yelling, oh, it's the 1%. It's the 1%. Well, you know, for you on the... From which one of his homes, yeah. which one of his three homes does uh, Bernie Sanders the one, decree this? The one by the lake. Thank you. That one. Right. The, um, the oceanfront property yeah, for, in for, Arizona? Yeah. Okay. For all the all of the leftists who like, and a lot of the leftists my age who like to scream and cry about the 1%, should be damn thankful about the uh, less uh, of a lot less than one percent of people who are federal judges in the United States, because you know what? They're actually going to uh, do you a lot of good if you're a leftist in upholding and uh, furthering your leftist agenda, even when there is even even when there is a Republican Congress and a Republican in the White House. The fact that so many people or so few people, I should say, the fact that eight or nine Supreme Court judges can have so much sway. You know, if you're a leftist, that's pretty good. You know, nothing says populist nationalist quite like a billionaire using the White House to get a department store to carry his daughter's designer brand. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. 
This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Don't forget, our last show here on the Salem Radio Network is February 17th. That's a week from Friday. And then we debut on CRTV on February 27th. So the early bird discount, if you use promo code DACE, is still available at CRTV.com, which allows you to get access not only to our new show, but also Mark Levin, Mark Stein, and Michelle Malkin and Steven Crowder as well. And since some of you have asked, yes, there is a monthly subscription option there at CRTV as well. You can look into that too. So CRTV.com, promo code DACE to make sure you don't miss an episode when we debut on the 27th. Now, last night, CNN did something that um, I think was an honest attempt at informing the public. Am I wrong on this? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I mean, I just... I, because you you took the two guys who were the runners-up, basically, uh, in, in both political parties' last presidential primaries and are far more committed to the... Well, I, Hillary's clearly very committed to leftist ideology. I, I think we would all probably agree Bernie's more committed to it. But but Hillary's not like some kind of dino, right? I mean, I, I think Sanders is just more of a true believer in pure Marxism. I think there's no question that Cruz is much more of a true believer in what's in his party platform than what's in Donald Trump's. And so CNN squared them off last night. This went on for two hours to debate Obamacare. It was formatted like a presidential debate. There were moderators, questions from the audience. Now, I, I did follow some of the coverage of this last night on social media while we were on the air. I didn't, I've not watched any of this because I wanted us to react to it off the cuff here. Or I wanted at least me to be able to react to it off the cuff tonight on the show. And we're going to spend most of this hour playing some clips from this. But Aaron, I know you watched the whole thing last night. Mm-hmm. Your overall impressions of this, do you think it did a service... To the Republic, do you think it informed people? Were both sides able to adequately get their perspectives out there and take challenging questions from the other? Yeah, I, I think uh, for thinking people, for for people who are genuinely interested in this debate, so and, it had very low ratings. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, for for so for people who are generally or genuinely out there with an open mind as to what to go or what to do next with Obamacare, I think it was very substantive and uh, very informative for those people. Now for people. And I'm looking at you, Bernie Sanders supporters, who really, um, who really just don't care and just want more socialism, yo, want more government dole, yo. All of the Bernie supporters, it was, I mean, it was kind of moot. And for those, I think, who are um, just against Obamacare, no matter what, it was kind of moot as well. For, but for those on the why, fence, why, why do you think it was moot for the for for, because for, they're for already, the feel the burn movement? Because they're they're already set in their ways. I mean, meaning you don't think objective data? Objective is, data is, is not is possible. Not, it, yeah, it, they'll exactly. just say I want this. 
to cre- give me mm-hmm. a reality where I get what I want. Exactly. And it was really wrought out, and I think you'll hear this in, in some of these uh, clips, it was really wrought out in the way that uh, Cruz, which we all know how he approaches debates, very, very informed, um, just uh, armed to the teeth with facts, and the way that most leftists debate as well, where it's all just emotional rhetoric. That is exactly what we saw last night. All right, let's get to the first clip from last night. And this is actually, we, we are not just cherry-picking things that makes our guy Cruz look good. We, we actually want to get a good, uh, a, a well-rounded look at this event last night. Because now that Obama, here's the truth, guys. Now that Obamacare has been fully implemented, it is not as simple as this is the solution now is just some sort of conservative ideological petri dish. That's, that's why you have to oppose these things when they're proposed, because undoing them is like trying to peel back the layer of an onion. It's not just as simple as we get rid of it and we just do market stuff. Well, the market has dramatically shifted now to accommodate a command economy. You know, So just as you didn't put on all the weight in a day, you don't lose all that weight in a day. And so when you, when you ask people from 2000, to 2014 to spend five years in this industry transitioning to from a from a, 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 a hybrid market command approach to an almost strictly command approach you can't just say well tomorrow guys this is just going to be right back to a purely market approach and so i would imagine there were some questions that were difficult for even ted cruz to answer during the course of this and we want to listen to that as well all right so here's the first clip this is actually a question to ted cruz he has asked hey what are you going to do to make people like me who are to help people like me who are alive because of obamacare Neosha Ponder, who is fighting breast cancer and currently undergoing radiation treatment. Neosha. Senator Cruz, if Obamacare is repealed, is there anything you can do to ensure that provisions are in place so that half of my paycheck won't be spent on health care? I didn't ask for cancer. I never smoked. I never drank a lot. I've lived a pretty healthy lifestyle. I fear that I fear that if Obama, if I don't have Obamacare, if I'm not covered, then my pre-existing condition of breast cancer and remaining treatments will make it difficult for me to afford insurance. Senator Cruz, what can you do to protect people like me who are alive because of Obamacare? Well, Neil, thank you for asking that question. And, and how, long, how long have you been diagnosed with breast cancer? I was diagnosed on April 25th, 2016. Oh, wow. Well, you, well you're, you're doing great. You know, our prayers are with you. I'll tell you, my mom had breast cancer. And, and my mom was diagnosed in 2000. I, I sat by her hospital bed as she went through two surgeries. And, and it's a horrible disease. But 16 years later, thank God she is a survivor. And, and I will tell you, our medical innovation has been incredible dealing with breast cancer. And so all of us, our prayers and thoughts are with you. Thank you. Uh, you know, you asked about people who get sick and not wanting your insurance canceled, not wanting your premiums to go up. That's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And, and if you look at every proposal that's been submitted, every, every significant proposal that's been submitted to replace Obamacare, to fix the problems in the health care system after Obamacare has gotten rid of, all of them protect people in your situations. All of them prohibit insurance companies from canceling someone because they got sick. They prohibit insurance companies from jacking up the insurance rates because they got sick or injured. Look, the whole point of insurance is, is none of us know if we're going to wake up tomorrow did earlier earlier last year and discover we have a terrible disease. And, and, and we buy insurance, we pay our premiums just so we, we know that we'll be able to take care of that situation. So absolutely we got to fix it and I'm confident that we're going to. Remember when I told you guys, when we first started having this conversation right after we came back from Christmas vacation, 
that pre-existing conditions, the reality is they're untouchable. It's a political reality. You can complain about it. You can yell about it. Then we sound like snowflakes for Bernie Sanders. We just ignore reality and just try to conjure up a reality that we would prefer. This answer from Ted Cruz is an example of what I was talking about after the first of the year. Because he's right. Every single replacement plan that Republicans have put in to the Congress does mandate coverage for pre-existing conditions. So that is an argument that is not winnable politically. Um, and, and maybe you could make the case it's not winnable morally and ethically. That's a separate debate. Uh, but, but the reality is that is the reality, Todd. And that's not going to change. Well, we disagreed then. Uh, sooner or later, the bottom line starts talking. And if we are the people that just say this is what it is and we are torpedoing our fiscal sovereignty in the process, well, then I guess we get what we deserve. We, for, I wish he would have been a little bit more specific. Um, he danced around this, I think, for the reasons you're talking about. But we always had high-risk pools that uh, took care of people like these. And, yes, they are more expensive. But it, th- th- there's the corollary to uh, her situation with having to pay more for insurance right now. I'm having to pay more for insurance. I'm glad this woman is alive, but what I'm paying for other people's insurance right now is a lifestyle changer for me and my family. More than any other, we cannot do certain things because of the ridiculous, and we, we've, we are not, uh, we don't use much medicine in our family. Yet we, so we're just basing li- lighting money on fire every year. Th- these are problems. This is way broader than these these stories. I'm glad she is healthy. I'm glad she is alive. But the fact that we always put these forward is an emotional hijacking of a much more uh, broader issue. The reality is you can't argue with a woman um, with, with right. a cancer patient. Right. You can't win that argument. So he was very wise to not have it. He was very wise just to move on and 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 yes. whether he agrees with all those approaches, but to state the fact that all of the approaches cover pre-existing conditions. I mean, now, if it's in a philosophical vacuum where someone stands up and says, you know, I'm going to die of cancer without Obamacare. And he sort of said that he said, hey, you know, my mom had breast cancer in 2000. Did we have Obamacare in 2000? So, right. so without Obamacare, you have no hope of surviving cancer? That was a shrewd move. I Difference okay, so between that, health insurance yes, and health So that was a subtle but shrewd move to make the point that you want to make because you don't sit there and argue with a woman fighting cancer. That's an unwinnable argument. Even when you're right, the fact you had it means you lost. You're listening to Steve Dace. How about we try that whole life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness thing again? This is Steve Dace. By the way, that's why we just played that clip. I mean, if you're going to do this, this is the argument you're going to face. Just as the other side struggles to answer questions of, I lost my insurance. I can't afford my insurance because of your Obamacare. How do you explain that? Good luck. You can't, make, you can't win that argument either. Now, it's a bit of a different argument from, your policies cost me to lose my insurance, to, well, before Obamacare, no one was ever healed from this disease, when that's just not true. But, but that's not the time and place to, in, in person to probably have that argument with, and that's why they used her as an example to present that argument. But that's what 
with the people who represent our side of this debate, that's what they're going to have to face if, if, you know, if they go down this road. Let's go to this next clip. Bernie Sanders talking about what the repealing of Obamacare will mean. Right, let me get right to the point. Uh, Senator Cruz, like most Republicans, has said that he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act or so-called Obamacare. Let me tell you what that will mean to the American people. It means that if you are one of 20 million Americans who finally has received health insurance, forget about it, you're gone. You're off health insurance. And that means when you get sick, you ain't going to be able to go to the doctor. And when you end up in the hospital, you'll be paying those bills for the rest of your life, or maybe you'll go bankrupt. What the repeal of the ACA means that if you are one of 10 million senior citizens who today is struggling with the outrageous cost of prescription drugs, your prescription drug costs are going to go up on average about $2,000. What the repeal of the ACA means is that if you are suffering with cancer, with diabetes, with serious mental illness, you will be put into a position where you may be rejected from any insurance at all because you have a pre-existing condition. And by the way, women are considered a pre-existing condition by the insurance companies because they might have a baby. Is the ACA perfect? No. Nobody believes that it is, and nobody believes that we do not need to improve it. But the debate is whether we kill it entirely or we make improvements in it. And I will tell you, overwhelming majority of the American people say, do not simply repeal the ACA, make improvements. Last point. The United States is the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. I believe we should move in that direction. The ACA has been a step forward. We have got to go further and join every other major country on earth and say that if you are an American, you are guaranteed health care as a right, not a privilege. Is it done? Yeah. Okay. Uh, good. Because there were numerous things said there that are just simply not true. Uh, and, and the thing that he said there at the end was factually true, but from a false premise. The idea that America should do things because every other major country on earth does them, well, are you sure you want that to be the standard, Senator Sanders? Because right now, every other major country on earth, save for five, and the other four are totalitarian regimes. Every other country on earth, save for five, us and four totalitarian regimes, has banned late-term partial birth abortion that you're an advocate of. So if the standard becomes we should do what all the other major civilized nations on earth do, be careful about waving that magical wand, because when you pee it into the wind, brother, it blows back right back at you. The rest of what he said is just factually not true, guys. It is factually not true. Now, I don't necessarily even agree with it, by the way. We're just having this debate. Just the last segment. But it is factually not true that, it, that the replacements for Obamacare get rid of pre-existing condition uh, protection. It's just not true. They all do. Republicans are not going to touch that. They know they politically can't do it. So that's one thing that he said right then and there that is simply not true. Okay? 
The idea that um, the other thing that he talked about is the cost of your prescription drugs will go up if we don't have more government. What did we do before Obamacare? What was the big guys? What was the big health care reform prior to Obamacare? What, was that? Well, what is Medicare Part D? What is it? Prescription drugs. Prescription drug coverage. So that was the biggest welfare program in American history until Obamacare, bigger than Medicare, Social Security when it was launched. I mean, obviously, those are bigger now. But at the time of its launch, it was launched as the biggest government welfare program in American history until Obamacare was launched. So you mean to tell me, Senator Sanders, that after we launched what was at the time the biggest government program of all time to provide coverage and reduced rates for prescription drugs for seniors, you mean to tell me... That if that if that program wasn't able to reel in the spiraling cost of prescription drugs, another government program will more government programs will. Folks, this is just simple logic. If you did something to alter the market and that caused prices to go up, who's what is who? What is the fault of what caused prices to go up? What you did to the market. It's simple cause and effect. So the so everything he said there about that is just simply not true. The false premise that all of these diseases will go un, un, uncured. We just had this conversation last segment. So no one was cured of mental illness prior to 2014. No one was cured of any of these diseases. No, diabetes went untreated in America until 2014. People just have having random insulin shock shock attacks on the streets of America until 2014. That's just an asinine statement to make. And the kind of statements you can't let them get away with making, you have to challenge these things. And you have to challenge them not politely. You have to challenge them as being as asinine as they sound. Because they're making these outlandish statements in order to create emotion and sense of urgency. You need to respond in kind. And then the other thing he said that was factually not true, 20 million people were helped. That's simply not true. That's just simply not. See, what Obamacare's statistics do, they count the people that they force to go on Obamacare because they cost them their previous insurance. And so they, they, add, that, add, they add that to the number. It's a little bit like, it's a, it's a little bit like when you know, your, your kid has a chore chart. And on the chore chart, it's clean up the dishes after, after dinner. And in, and in the middle of dinner, they spill their drink and break their glass. And then clean up their mess and then look at you and say, hey, I should get paid for that. It's on the chore chart. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's what Obamacare did. We broke the system. We forced millions of people to buy our product who either didn't want it or had one that they, that they preferred yeah. instead. And we're counting that as a statistic. The real numbers are somewhere between 5 and 8 million people that, are, are, that, are, that they probably helped, which is still a substantial number, by the way. But it doesn't net out people like me that's who are right. hurt by it. But, but, that's, but that doesn't do enough. Because five to eight million people, you just simply say, guys, every individual state could create a catastrophic state exchange in their own state, like we do here in Iowa with the Hawkeye program. That's a few hundred thousand people in every state on average, and you can deal with that in your own, in your own state. And the federal government doesn't have to get involved and wreck the system. But if you say 20 million, then it's then, wow, somebody, then, then we hear the battle cry of the Marxist. Something must be done. That is the battle cry of Marxism. Whenever the politicians say something must be done, hold on to your wallets and hold on to your butts because that's where you're probably going to take it. And when that something is health care as a right, 
run away. That is pernicious. Uh, you do not want the government telling you from birth to death what has to happen to your body. We've seen how that goes at the beginning of life and at the end of life and at every tranny stop in between. Anything that requires consent from another party by definition cannot be a right. That's a contract. You're listening to Steve Dace. Letting the lion out of its cage. The Steve Day Show. All right, let's try to at least get in one more clip from last night's two-hour debate. I didn't know it was two hours until I came in tonight. You told me. I figured it was just an hour show. Oh, it was two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Uh, last night's two-hour debate between Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz on Obamacare. This is a question to Bernie Sanders. He's asked, hey, why should, I, why should I continue to pay for my insurance plan that sucks? One of them is in our audience right now. Her name is uh, Melissa Borkowski. She's a nurse practitioner from Florida. She's a mother of four. She and her husband are paying more than $1,000 a month to insure their family for a plan with a $13,000 deductible. Melissa? Good evening, Senators. Thank you for your time. As he said, I'm a nurse practitioner. I've worked in healthcare for over 25 years now. But under Obamacare, I'm not able to get the health services I need for myself or my family. Last year, I had a very abnormal pap smear and needed additional tests. But our plan has a $13,000 deductible before it will cover anything. So I wasn't able to afford to get those tests done. So now I sit here wondering if I have diagnosed cancer. And that will eventually take me away from my four children. My plan premiums plus deductible cost over $25,000 for the year, and it covers little more than basic preventative services. Senator Sanders, my question is, why should we, my family be forced to pay so much money for an insurance plan that is essentially useless and Good. doesn't do anything Pam, for me? Pam, Melissa. 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 You ask a great question, and the answer is it is totally absurd. It is totally absurd. But the, the real question we should be asking, well, Melissa is talking about an outrageous deductible, right? Yes. So it prevents you from going to the doctor when you should be going. The real question, which is never talked about or very rarely talked about, is why we end up spending as a nation twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country. Now, if you were in Canada, you know what? You would get the health care that you needed. If you were in the UK, France, Germany, Scandinavia, you would get the health care you need as a right of being a citizen in this country. The idea that we have policies like that, like the one you described, is clearly an outrage and should tell every American that we've got to join the rest of the industrialized world and guarantee health care to all people as a right. And when we do that, by the way, for the vast majority of the, pe- the American people, their family incomes will go up. What he just told you is confirmation of what I have surmised and said on this show for years was the real goal of Obamacare. The real goal of Obamacare was to cloward piven the health care system, was to overrun it with cases like the one that this woman just articulated, so that there would then be, it'd be too far gone. We, we couldn't possibly implement a direct uh, pay uh, process in, in health care anymore. Uh, the, 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 
relationship between patient and doctor and, and doctor from a billing standpoint would be so such a bureaucratic nightmare and so regulated now that it just is it would be unfathomable for us to go back to a, a system that existed prior to this model and so therefore we just now should just go all the way with it and just have a pure European style single payer system instead that that was the goal of Obamacare that's why he gave up the public option when did you ever know Barack Obama to give up on anything and any kind of a negotiation on a public policy he cared about. Probably the only time I can think of in the entire eight years he was in the White House. I mean, how many years did we sit here and watch Republicans go up there on various issues and just negotiate against themselves? The one time Obama said you gave, gave, gave something away, and he did it, by the way, when the Democrats had 60 seats in the United States Senate. Had a filibuster-proof Senate is when he did it. He said, you know what, you're right, we'll give up the public option process. Why did he do that? Because he just got up one day and felt gracious. The one time in his entire presidency, he thought, you know, I'm going to concede your point. No. Because the goal of Obamacare was to collapse the system, guys. If there's a public option, and and the public option destabilizes the health insurance industry, what are we all going to blame for the destabilization of the health insurance agency, guys? Health insurance companies. No, we're going to blame the public option. We're going to say it was their fault. You introduced this public option. You didn't go far enough. You destabilized the system. So since there is no public option, who do, now we get to blame the companies. Now we blame the companies. There's no public option. So the fact you have this whacked out program, which, by the way, is Obamacare approved, the fact you have this whacked out program, this is all the insurance. There's no scapegoat now. You blame it all on the on the health insurance companies. You drop a deuce in their lap, and then you blame them for soiling their pants. That's exactly what the plan was. And you heard Bernie Sanders just say that. Of course it's absurd. Well, then why the hell did you vote for it? Why? Because he wanted to be able to make the argument he turned her question into. That this, in the end, was meant to destabilize the system to get them to where they ultimately wanted to go. And you just heard Bernie Sanders confirm that for you. Listening to Steve Dace. Liberty has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. This is Steve Dace. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. Indeed, this is time for the Nightly Buzz. When we go back, take a look at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the show, because even in the course of three hours, we can't get to everything. So this is sort of the uh, the news and notes section, uh, and it's the headlines that have been trending, at least noticed to be trending, by our producer Aaron on both social media and at the water cooler where you are. He's got those headlines. We will react with the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Uh, first story. In the past week or so, nine Senate Democrats have stated that Judge Neil Gorsuch deserves an up-or-down vote in the Senate. 
That implies that they wouldn't vote to support a filibuster to block his nomination. There are 48 Democratic senators or Democrats and independents who align with the Democrats. If nine oppose a filibuster, there will only be 39 senators in support, and the filibuster effort will fail. Remember, I said this on CNN last week uh, when I was on. They don't have the political capital. There's not going to necessarily have to be a nuclear option. And there's there's parliamentary procedures that McConnell could use anyway, aside from a nuclear option to bring up a vote should it go there. But they don't have the political capital to fight this. This is all fake astroturf. Uh, They are this is done to uh, pretend like they're fighting something and and create headlines, news cycles, raise money. The real fight, as I've said all along, is going to be the next judge because that's the fifth vote. That's the swing vote on the court right there. That's Especially if that person that steps aside is a suitor, a Kennedy, or a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's, that's the one that you're going to have a, a, a war of Borkian proportions over that battle. But this is largely um, uh, fake. And I think, and, and when you look at the number you said was nine, yeah. Do you guys know how many Democrats are up for re-election in the Senate next year from states that Trump won? Ten. Think that's a coincidence? I think not. So I, I think that this is largely, and you'll have they they will still grill him on Roe v. Wade. That, I mean that's because that's their you know that's going to be their Trey Gowdy pulling Hillary Clinton's pants down moment for their base. They're going to grill him on Roe v. Wade, but the idea that they were going to filibuster this and everything else is, is was was never going to materialize. But watch out if Gorsuch steps in it. And even if he doesn't, them triangulating and preserving their place doesn't mean that they're not going to get a lot of pressure from their base to knife him no matter what. I mean, look at Lady Gaga's taking heat because she wasn't sufficiently political during halftime. So uh, this may be the the road they'd like to go down, but they'll be getting pressure from their base to do otherwise. Yeah, they will, but the political environment's against them, and they can't change the environment. Like, they want to throw Joe Manchin overboard for defending Jeff Sessions today. Okay, that'll be their 53rd Republican seat next November. When does this stop them before? Well, Well, actually, they have not faced this before. That's the conversation we've had. They have never faced a reality where they did not control the environment or their or the let me rephrase that or the perception did not exist amongst their opposition that they did. So that even when Republicans won, they like apologized for winning the next day and 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 wanted to reach across. They've they've never faced in, in my life. Well, not since Reagan left. Have they faced an environment that they were not in control of and and where their media could not the next day change the whole narrative and perception to be in their favor? And that psychologically gives you a huge advantage, both internally for you and then externally against your opponents. That's all out the window now. That's that's out the window now. I mean, Trump is more shameless than they are. He doesn't care. When you go low, he will go lower. You go to the ankle, he will invent the cankle. All right, you go to the Achilles, he will come underneath the palm of your feet. Okay? It's all ball bearings these days with Donald Trump. So, you, so, so these tactics that they have used all these years are out the window. They're irrelevant now. And they're going to have to learn tactically how to adjust to that, Todd. And, they may, and th- we may find out that for all the bluster... That, they, that they're not Nolan Ryan. A guy who came up for the minors throwing 110 miles an hour for the New York Mets and then figured out after Major League pitchers figured out how to hit him, you know, I, I'm going to have to throw a curveball and became a Hall of Fame pitcher. How many times? You're a baseball guy. Every year? How many? Joel Zamaya, my Detroit Tigers, came up. Throwing 110 miles an hour out of the bullpen. He was going to revolutionize. He was going to be the next great closer in Major League Baseball. 
Guys figured out how to hit his fastball. He couldn't develop an off-speed pitch when he tried, hurt his arm, done. How many, how many times is that story told in Major League Baseball? Every single year. For every one of these 105-mile-an-hour Nolan Ryans, there's a 100 of these guys that just can't find the second pitch, can't become Burt Blylevin, can't become Nolan Ryan, and flame out. We see this every year, right? Well, they have lived in an environment where 100-mile-an-hour fastballs were good enough. Republicans could never hit it. And even if they did hit it out of the park and beat them on, in November, they, they went on Center that night. It's a fluke. It'll never happen again. The Republicans, it'll never happen again. Right? So they come out the next day and strike them out four times. Is that not the environment we have lived in for 25 years? Yes. It's gone now. How they will react to this, I w- just as someone who loves the process of politics from an from a, 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 a analytical standpoint, I am fascinated to see how they're going to react to this. Because they're engaging in all the same sort of name-calling. They're doing another all-night sin-in. These are all things that worked before that just, that, that just don't work now. The, the environment has kind of said, that's a little played out. You know, I mean, that's the kind of, you know, we're, you, you guys, that's, that, that's eight-track. We, we're not even doing CDs anymore, okay? I'll be fascinated to see whether they tactically are able to evolve and adjust to an environment where their domination of the media doesn't set the agenda every single day. And we may find out that they can't. Next story, Vanity Fair film critic Richard Lawson warned that Betsy DeVos's policies will kill children. (laughs) After she was confirmed as Secretary of Education on Tuesday, he tweeted, That is not an exaggeration in any sense. Voucher programs will, will create systems in which queer kids have literally zero access to support apparatus because they are in religious schools meaning voucher programs will lead to more suicides. Betsy DeVos's policy will kill children. This is why I think it's... This is where I would not have put a muzzle on Elizabeth Warren, and we talked about this in Hour One with Daniel. If I were were working... Let me tell you what I'd be doing. If I was Betsy DeVos's communications director at at the Department of Education, I wouldn't put that out of my official... Like I wouldn't make it an official communique communique but i would go to all my allies everywhere in the country and feed this story to them and say broadcast this this is how nuts this is how crazy these people are put a spotlight on this you want these people talking actually they are their own worst enemies always be thankful when they tell you what they actually amen amen you're listening to steve dace Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Steve Day Show. All right. I took way too long on that very first nightly buzz topic, but I, I think that's a point that needed to be made. Just maybe not for as long as I made it. So let's get to, uh, let, let's clean up uh, some more from, uh, from the attic there before we get out of here for this hour, Eric. All right, sounds good. Uh, next story. The Student Senate at Santa Clara University has voted against giving official status to the school's chapter of Turning Point USA. Now, if you're not familiar with Turning Point USA, they say they're a nonprofit uh, that uh, just uh, states its mission is to identify, educate, train, and organize students to promote fiscal responsibility, free markets, and limited government. According to the minutes of the meeting in question, sophomore Senator 
Alex Perlman, said he believes the benefits of being part of this organization were outweighed by the amount of people who feel uncomfortable with being part of this chapter or this charter organization. Multicultural Center Director Isaac Niblas said the organization is against our ideals as a Jesuit philosophy and against our humanity, and senators need to think about that before voting. Todd, those values are against their Jesuit philosophy? Unfortunately, the way the Jesuits have been trending, uh, he might actually be more right about that than uh, any Well, you're not describing Jesuits. You're describing Marxists. Which, I mean, there are the original Jesuits. The whole order uh, stopped and then started up again after, I can't, it was close. It was gone for a long time. And in its current incarnation, you often can't tell the difference. Which university was this again, Aaron? Santa, Santa Clara. Clara. Is that a yeah. private school? I believe, uh, it, yeah. I believe so. Okay. All right. I was going to say, because if it's a public university, you're going to have to learn how to fight back against this. And the only way to truly, really fight back against it is to cut their funding. That's the only thing that will get these people's attention. Next uh, story. NBC is in talks to air a 30-minute primetime weekly edition of Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update. Alec Baldwin's impression of the president's has skyrocketed SNL's popularity. A standalone weekend update show could help NBC capitalize on the topsy-turvy news cycle. Variety reports that SNL is up 22% in viewership. That's its strongest start to a season in more than two decades. I mean, listen, Trump is is good to the extremes of both sides of, of your view of him. I mean, Fox has its right now. It's, it's coming off maybe the best month in the history of Fox. It's now the number one most watched cable network in the country, surpassing ESPN uh, in January. And, and they are essentially Russia today for Trump pun intended what snl is becoming is sort of the daily show uh pan, you know panning of trump on the left uh and you can see that that uh, that's the polarization of the country and and shilling for him is good for the pocketbook and constantly tearing him down uh and deconstructing him is good for the pocketbook as well you know what's not good for the pocketbook is trying to actually do an honest analysis of the situation there doesn't seem to be much of a market for that for most of the people trying to do it present company excluded it's actually worked out well for us but a lot of people we know in our industry it is not that being said if you're if you're worried about fake news as an industry this is the exact wrong thing to do todd the exact wrong thing to do oh yeah but they can't help themselves so par for the course you're listening to steve dace about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Don't forget, we are moving to CRTV beginning February the 27th. You don't want to miss an episode because that show is going to be every bit as mediocre as this one, but maybe even more so because you'll be able to watch us being mediocre too. So use promo code DACE. Take advantage of that substantial early bird discount. 
discount at CRTV.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, it's Worldview Wednesday. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on The Steve Day Show. It's that time of night when Aaron gets to ask us any three questions about any three things. Nothing is verboten. He can go anywhere he wants. But just to make sure he keeps it it on the real, uh, he has to answer the same questions himself. Thank you, Steve. First question. Do you believe there could be a market for a Sanders versus Cruz style debate program on all manner of issues if it was marketed correctly? depending on what your definition of that was, and it was on on a regular basis on a major network. Yes, I do. Uh, Do I think there's a substantial market? No. Do I think there is a market? Because I don't think most people either have the time to think or are interested in it. And I hate saying that, but I just... You know, if you know, I mean, I just, I, that's what I think. I'm not going to lie to you. Even even if telling you the truth might necessarily not be good for my bottom line, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. I just, I don't think there is, I don't think there's a mass clamoring of people out there, you know, that are going to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm not going to watch Celebrity Roast on Comedy Central tonight because Cruz and Sanders are debating NAFTA. I don't think that's true. I wish it were, but it's not. But do I think there is a market? You bet. You know, I look at what groups like Young Americans for Freedom have done for years, booking prominent conservatives like Ben Shapiro on college campuses around the country for speeches and forums like this. So do I think there's that kind of a market and that it would serve the republic well? Yes. Would I make it two hours? No. Okay? I would not make it two hours. But um, but I absolutely think that I'd like to see this model emulated in the future on other issues i totally agree there was a great online show i think and it might still be on but it had two people on each side and i believe the format was like an hour and they would debate one particular issue and then the audience would uh grade out based on various factors uh who won and they did it on uh sports and uh, philosophy and other matters uh, i thought it was great and it, you it could have a college quiz bowl atmosphere it wouldn't just have to be too political but you could make you know they could be one of a team of two or three uh and I think people like it. Is there a market for that? Absolutely. Would it be the late? Would it be like that? What's the Regis television quiz show that we were gaga over a couple a while ago? Oh, that was just um, a, who's no um, um, something never, about me a millionaire? Yeah, who yeah, wants to be a millionaire? Yeah, yeah. Would it be that? No, but I think there's a sweet spot for this. Yeah, to be, it it has to be set up in the right context. I mean, I don't think people are going to be interested in debating um, a, a debate on NAFTA, but you saw at least for uh, the Christian community or the religious community in the United States, I, I don't know what exactly the numbers were, but it seems like there was a ton of buzz over that uh, Ken Ham versus Bill Nye debate uh, a couple of years ago. I, I think things like that where it's really a hot-button issue and you actually have people who know what they're talking about. That's uh, one of the most viewed 
events in, in the in the history of the American Internet, from what I recall, was that debate. Yeah, I, and like I said, I don't remember the, the exact numbers, but uh, from what I, I recall, it was, a, it was a huge deal. I think those things can be very successful if you debate the right issues. But if it's just uh, something that gets into the muck and mire and minutia of um, policy, um, but if you debate things on a philosophical level, I, I think people would be interested in that. Question two, what's the most badly organized or run meeting you've ever been to? Oh. Yes. All of, all of them. I've, yes. Yes. Um, I've talked about this before, and, I, and I've been to this meeting several times. And this is the meeting where a bunch of Christian conservative leaders get together to try and figure out how we're going to save America. And it always begins, we go around the room and everybody gives their qualifications. Like when pastors get together and the first question they ask each other is, how many people How many people were at your service last Sunday? Okay. Like, can you imagine someone, do you think there's anyone in America in a, in a truly orthodoxed seminary right now thinking, when I get out of here, I want a church of about 110 people? No. I, I don't think, I'd like to think there is, but probably not. And yet, when, when Christ died, three and a half years of ministry, on foot, all over the countryside, went everywhere he could, devoted his entire life during for three and a half years to full-time ministry, sun up to sundown, and sometimes after sundown. And when it was over, how many people were holed up in that upper room? After all the miracles they had seen, all the fanciful uh, deeds that he had done, when it was all over, there's about, what, 110 or so people, right, Todd, up in that upper room? that are, And most of them didn't even bother to show up, by the way, at the cross. But there's, but there's only about 100 and some odd people of that. That's about it. That are truly, after all of everything mm-hmm. that was done, that are sold out enough to come together and try and figure out how to be faithful and what to do next. But that's not the model we look at. And so, you know, and usually the guy with the biggest platform uh, or the most, uh, the listeners or the most best-selling books becomes the alpha in the room. Everybody has, then, 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 you know, there's a plan for what we're going to do. And then when it's over. We all endorse Donald Trump. And then when it's over, well, let's pray and ask God to bless it. Okay. I, I call these um, works with faith, not faith with works. Let's all go out there as believers and do what we think is right with our own human intuition and analysis. And because we're just so special, God will bless it because uh, he knows we have it, got it. We, we've got it going on. And it, that's not how this works. That's not how huh. any of this works. And I have been in that meeting multiple times. Yeah, sadly, I have a church story, too. I was on my parish council, and I was a liaison to the uh, school board that's affiliated with the school, and the school board was getting away with nonsense and just had gone rogue. So I came in all prepared, and I had done my research, and I just had it in writing about the bylaws and everything, about how they just couldn't – and I figured that that was going to – shut this group up because i knew them individually but when these individuals got together as a group it's a, they were a mob it, they did not care it was not about reason it was not about the letter of the law it was about nothing i was just shouted down over and over again it was a totally untenable meeting pathetic and at church I am, too, going to give an archetype of a meeting, and I've been in this meeting many, many, many times. It all begins by talking a whole heck of a lot about nothing, just small talk. 
even though there's actual productive things that could be that could be done um and then it's a whole lot of stuff that could have just been you know put in an email and then some more small talk and after an hour is over with we can all go back to doing our jobs that's i've been in that meeting a lot uh last question what's something you wish you had tried harder at i think there's lots of things i wish i would have tried harder at um particularly when i was younger I wish I would have tried. You know what? I'm going to say this. I wish I would have tried harder. I was a decent athlete growing up, good enough to play all the sports, but not you know gifted or anything. But I wish I would have tried harder on the fitness side of it because you know you have that metabolism when you're younger, and if you are active year round, you don't really look at diet and weightlifting and those sorts of things. We're just beginning to come in as I was in in high school. I wish I would have tried harder to get in on the stuff. I'm doing now 25 years ago because I'd be a freaking beast. All right. I mean, I, I, not the guy that no matter how much I work out, my I can yank my back putting pajama pants on. Okay. So if there's one thing I wish I would have tried harder at, it would have been the, the fitness conditioning aspect of playing sports when I was younger, which I'm doing a lot of now in my private life, but there's a big difference picking that up at 38, 39 years old than when you're 16, 17, 18 years old. That's why I got my son Noah. We do homeschool PE. He comes to the gym with me two or three days a week, and he does all the same exercises I do, just obviously with different weights and things of that nature. Why? Because he's going to be a beast. That's why. College, I more or less mailed it in, did fine. But a bit just a waste. I did too, but you know what? It turned out okay for me, so I don't well, regret out, that it, that much. It turned out okay, <laughs> but it's a it's a fantastic opportunity mm. between the ages of eighteen and twenty, dude, to just do about anything. And I've mailed it in. I wish I would have tried harder at football and athletics in general. You're listening to Steve Dace. I personally believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy, worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian. Tea Partier. The free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. One of the topics, Todd, that you have been urging me for a few months now to tackle is economics, particularly labor, trade, because a lot of these debates are, are, are reoccurring because we just had an election. But, but we're hearing terms that we haven't heard in a long time in America. Uh, and, and probably not since President Bill Clinton, the, uh, the first Democrat to win the White House uh, since LBJ, or actually since Jimmy Carter, uh, he was the one who actually signed NAFTA into law and mainstreamed you know, uh, free trade in the Democratic Party. So terms like uh, tariffs, customs, uh, protectionism, uh, unless you hang out with uh, socialists, these are terms we've not really heard a lot in mainstream American debate 
in a, a decade or two and that have become more mainstream because of some of the things Donald Trump said during the presidential campaign. So you, you've been urging me to say, hey, let's do a Worldview Wednesday readdressing these topics. Absolutely, because you do hear a lot of these terms uh, at the genesis of our country at its founding, but th- th- we live in a much different land in terms of what the board looks like that we are trading on. We aren't bringing tea over in frigates that were blown here by the wind. I mean, the world is a much smaller place. So could one thing have been good in the past that is now just absolutely a non sequitur? And we need to know that if Trump is about to make the entire world his monopoly board. So we brought somebody on who hopefully knows a lot more about this than, than we do to help us uh, to at least navigate, if not to co-pilot this conversation with us on this Worldview Wednesday. His name is Hugh Welchel. He is the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And we want to welcome him to the show. You can also check out his new book, How Then Should We Work? Uh, actually, this book is a few years old, but it applies to what we're going to be talking about here tonight. So, Hugh, thank you for joining us this evening. How are you? Thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you today. So, Hugh, as, as you watched this last election and, and notes and, and de- debates over tariffs and customs and protectionism and, and outsourcing, these sorts of things became topics du jour when a lot of these things had not been debated in recent years. Your reaction to seeing some of this uh, nomenclature being dredged back up was what? Well, I think it kind of, it's kind of amusing in some respects because you have all these people throwing around these words. And most of them don't really understand the basic principles that underlie the discussions that they're involved in. So when you don't understand the underlying principles and they're talking about tariffs and this and that, uh, it's, it's almost comical because I don't think people understand what they're talking about because they don't understand what they're talking about. Hmm. In your view... Does the President of the United States, the way he's communicated them during these debates, do you think he knows what he's talking about? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, and, and a lot of this is going to play out over time. It's, uh, it's an interesting, as I've observed Trump, a lot of times he says one thing, he does something else. And someone told me the only way you really understand what Trump's doing is go back and read his book, Art of the Deal, which interestingly enough, I did. And when you read that, you realize a lot of things he says, he doesn't really mean he's just setting a marker for future negotiation. Mm -hmm. And if he's running the country that way, it may benefit us, it may not. I think time will tell. But I think that, um, I think he's smarter than a lot of people give him credit for. But I have to admit, sometimes I would even worry about some of the things he says. Let's define terms, Hugh. What's a tariff? Okay. A tariff is basically a charge that you put on another country for um, for one reason or another, right? Um, and I think, you know, before we get into a lot of this technical stuff, we should really step back and think a little bit about what is trade. Because, see, I don't think most people understand what trade is. One of the things we do here at the Institute, we talk a lot about man's anthropology. In other words, how did God make men? Uh, how did he make us? Why did he make us a certain way? And if you look at it, uh, we would argue that basically... Everyone is made the same. We're all made in the image of God. But then we'd also say, you look around, we're all very different. And God made us that way on purpose. And he made us that way so that we would come together and work together. Because you have talents that I don't have. I have talents you don't have. 
And what people find very early on, if we come together and pool our talents, we can do far more together than we can apart. That is the basis of all trade. And I would argue it's the way God made us. Often we think about uh, the universe and God created the universe, and we go back and read the creation story, and, and he looked at everything he'd done at the end of the six days and said it's very good. And I would argue that he's saying it's very good because as he looks at the creation, everything from the smallest subatomic particles to the biggest galaxy spinning in space works together exactly as he's planned. I mean, we like to think kind of in, in, in um, um, kind of a plus-minus type thing. So, you know, we want to tell people, well, you're either dependent or you're independent. Well, the reality is God created a universe that's interdependent. And and trade really comes out of who we are. My, we have an economist, uh, Ann Bradley, who, who is, um, is, is on our staff, and she uses this example all the time. She says, look at the movie Castaway. Remember the movie with Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. ship, you know, the crashes on this island? And um, here he is on this beautiful desert island. I mean, he's got water, he's got food, the weather's perfect. This is where you or I would want to go on a vacation, right? Especially this time of year. But does he flourish? No. Why? Because he's by himself. I mean, the scripture says it's not good for man to be alone, and we often think that that's about marriage and, 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 and starting families, but that's not necessarily true. Man wasn't made to be alone. He was made to be with other people so that we could do and work together, and that's the basis for all trade. And I think you have to go back to that to begin to understand why trade is important, why it's so crucial, and then you begin to understand the more trade we have with one another, the better off we are. You're making the case that in terms of economics and labor, trade, etc., that there's something deeper happening here than just an, an exchange, a transaction, an exchange of assets, a, com- right, a, right. a, a contract, uh, a, you know, a social uh, contract, um, right, right. the selling of widgets, uh, supply and demand, profits and liabilities. Right. Something deeper is happening here. See, I would say when we trade, we're doing what God intended us to do. Go back to Genesis 128. God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall when everything's perfect and says, let me tell you why I created you. Let me tell you why I put you here in this garden. I want you to do two things. I want you to first go fill the earth with my images. And the second thing I want you to do, I want you to subdue the earth. Now, the word subdue there is the Hebrew word kabosh, and literally it means in that context to make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. So really the, the, net, the net result of all of our work should be to bring about flourishing. All right. Hugh Welchel is here with us, the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics here on A Worldview Wednesday. And that's exactly where I want to pick up the conversation when we come back in just a moment, Hugh. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. Back here on a Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio. We're looking at the worldview behind labor, work, apology for the redundancy, economics, trade. Hugh Welchel is here helping us with this conversation tonight. He is the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. Pardon me. 
Q, when, when you say that God intended for our work and our productivity to bring about flourishing to his creation, right? Because the purpose, the ultimate purpose of human life is to glorify God. So if, if he creates us and gives us gifts and abilities and skills, and we use them in a way that creates flourishing as a positive impact, then he would obviously get the glory. I don't know too many people in our audience, regardless of what they think of Trump's views on tariffs and those sorts of things, too many people in our audience that would disagree with that. You'd probably get a hearty amen. But there's going to be people, okay, there's, there's going to be people in our audience, though, that live in places like rural Pennsylvania. That, that live yep. in that live in pla- that live in uh, former manufacturing rust belt states like Michigan, Wisconsin, around yep. the country, for example, and they're going to say, "Hey, we went out and tried to flourish Mexico. We tried to flourish in China. We forgot to flourish here in the good old U.S. of A." And and that's and those are the people that Trump is speaking to. Do they have yep. a point? I, I think you know um, yes and no. Okay, so let's go back go back to my point. So if we are created to bring about flourishing, and the more trade we have with one another, the more we combine our efforts, the more flourishing takes place, then we should do things to promote more trade, right? That makes perfect sense. Now, here's where things go bad. It's when the government steps in, and whether it's our government or the Chinese government or or the Mexican government, and they begin to lay um, regulations on that trade. So the more regulations that are laid on the trade between one person or another or one country and another, I mean, what happens from person to person is a small microcosm of what happens when when nations trade with one another. The worse things become and the less flourishing there is. So once again, writ large, we have to do things that remove restrictions the best we can on trade, whether it's between me and you, or if it's between uh, a person, you know, doing a deal with someone across the street from him, or whether it's the United States doing deals with Mexico. So on a larger principle scale, what we want to do is we want to have politicians that go in and reduce the amount of restrictions on trade and, and, and get free trade. But I, it's funny, I hear all these people talk about free trade. There is no free trade in the world today. It's all been restricted by all these agreements that governments have made. And then what happens is whatever agreement the government makes, whoever makes the best deal, they tip things considerably into their favor. And I think the argument that Trump and some of his people have made is that we have been put into a lot of really bad deals. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly some truth to that. Uh, we don't have. I mean, let's look at look, look, look at look, this country today. Look at NAFTA for as an example. Here's what here, NAFTA did a lot of good. Here's what it also did, because the, the 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 moral argument that we were sold by by uh, the elites in both parties was we were going to essentially incentivize Mexico to create to to, to sustain a, and 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 caretake a middle class. This would help our illegal immigration problem. They would have the, the, the economic base to keep and, and their people at home and take care of them on a domestic level. Yet here we are 25 years later, uh, illegal immigration's f- five times what it was t- in 1991. And so all it, ju- all it seems, and, and so the average American looks at this and says, it looks like what we did is we shipped a bunch of our jobs to Mexico and they still sent their undesirables up here and said, if you don't take care of them, you're a bunch of bigots. Why is that a good deal? How would you react to that? I, th- I think, once again, it's complicated. It's much more complicated than it looks on the face. One of the problems we have when we make these arguments, 
we, we put things that are obvious. Sometimes we build straw men, um, and it's much more complicated. I think the real problem in this agreement, along with a lot of the agreements that we've entered into with other countries, is that the people we had negotiating the agreements weren't, for the most part, looking out after our best interest. Um, they weren't looking to bring the playing field on more more level. Everybody was trying to get a piece of the, the action for them or for their company or for someone they knew. This is one of the problems with lobbyists. Lobbyists in Washington today do an incredible amount of damage because what they do is they come in, they lobby senators to, to write special pieces in all these deals, all these trade deals get together that benefit their companies over other people's companies. We've got to get away from that if we really want to bring more flourishing back to this country. So so you again, think less government, essentially, is the answer? Oh, it is absolutely the answer. All right. More with Hugh Welchel from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics here on A Worldview Wednesday in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Bruce Jenner's favorite program. Call me Caitlin. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show on a Worldview Wednesday. Hugh Welchel is here with us looking at the worldview behind trade, labor, etc. He is the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. So here is an argument that I've tried making to this audience since way back in the Republican primary when Trump first started doing or making these arguments. And, and you fact check me. Uh, in this era of fake news and, and say, even, okay. if you, even if you agree or disagree with my analysis, if, if, if structurally what I've been trying to communicate to my audience is correct, because I want to make sure I'm telling them the truth to the best of my ability. What I told them was, you know, for about 180 years in this country, we, we took care of ourselves with customs, trade, uh, duties, tariffs, etc. Uh, and then we went to a confiscatory income tax, Federal Reserve scheme. If we were to reinstitute what Trump is suggesting... Uh, he, this is the same argument, this is the same straw man argument that the left makes with, uh, raise taxes on the rich, raise corporate income taxes. First of all, you say you want to create more jobs. The only people I know that can create jobs are rich people. All my jobs I've ever gotten from rich folks. Never had a poor pe- person give me a job. So right away, if you punitively punish people with the resources to create jobs, you're going to limit job creation. Secondly, corporations are just, particularly if they're in the consumer, if they're a consumer driven corporation, they're going to pass their cost of business as much as they can onto you. So at least some portion of that higher corporate income tax rate, while you're soaking the 1%, you're going to pay when you go to buy their products at the store. And that's exactly what's going to happen here with a tariff. Uh, Target and Walmart aren't just going to say, you know what, that pressed wood bookshelf you buy here for $19.99 that cost you $999 at the uh, fancy furniture store, uh, it, we're, we're going to gonna, you know, soak up that extra 35% tariff on our own because we like you that much. No, they're, they're gonna, it's now going to cost you $29.99 because they pass that cost on to you and so the very people that trump claims he's going to help with this scheme are the one because it isn't trump and his buddies that shop shop at target and walmart you it's the people in in the rural pennsylvania and and the rust belt they're the ones that do and they're the ones that are going to pay his tariffs not target and walmart am i wrong no you're right you're exactly right i mean and the reality is we don't want tariffs right and whether or not 
Trump is saying that as a bargaining tool in, in putting out a kind of a straw man position that he doesn't really intend to do? I don't know. We don't know. It's kind of dangerous language, and that's why a lot of economists um, are upset when he says things like that. Um, unfortunately, we don't know. We've never He's never been president before. He's never negotiated a trade agreement. Um, I hope, and I think this is my hope and prayer, is that he will do things to drive out tariffs, regulations, and to push us back closer to free trade. I'll be honest with you, I don't think we'll ever have real true free trade. But it is so corrupted right now with the way all these agreements have been made. Anything we can do to push it back in the right direction is going to be a huge plus, and it's going to be a win-win for, for all the countries involved. Now, the question is, will he do that or not? And to be quite honest, the jury is still out. If if you got a call from the White House and said, Hugh, we want to bring you in, you get 30 minutes with Donald Trump and his economic team. We're just we're doing a survey of average everyday thinkers out there across the country to get outside of our own bubble uh, and 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 try to find a, some conservative not named Larry Kudlow to actually listen to. Okay, nothing wrong with Larry Kudlow. There's just got to be somebody else other than him. So let's say they called up Hugh Welchel and they said, "Hey, Hugh, you get 30 minutes. All right, you come in from the cheap seats and tell us, hey, give us your your learned perspective on 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 what we could do to truly get we you know this economy recovering again, roaring again." We just had a president who only had two fiscal quarters his entire presidency that had economic growth that was the average of what we had under Bill Clinton. So how do we change that? You would say to them what, Hugh? Well, I think there are two pretty simple things. I think the tax code is all out of whack. So I think that's one of the things we've got to look at. Is how do we restructure the tax code? How do we get businesses? I mean, when, when, when business, there's no reason. I mean, no, I mean, if you were a business, you'd leave too because our tax rates on businesses are higher than any place else in the world. Why would you stay here? So I think that's the first thing we have to do is restructure the tax rate so we can get businesses coming back, stop them from leaving, get them back in here, and, and really begin to see that there's an incredible opportunity here. I mean, our energy situation is so incredibly good that factories should be moving back to the United States. But I think the tax code is one of the problems. So that's the first thing I think you have to do. And then the second thing I think you have to do is really attack what we've been talking about uh, since the beginning of the program. You've got to get a handle on trade. And we've got to be able to do things, negotiate agreements with other countries to move us back toward a more free trade. And really, both of those things involve getting the government out of the trade business, getting the government more out of our businesses. Uh, we need a lot more less government. One of the problems we've got today is we've got too much government. The government's running everything. That's not what our founding fathers intended. And it shouldn't be what we want. So would you say, for example, what you're talking about doing to the regulatory state, by all means, go forth yes. with that. Start there. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and once again, you know, this administration has promised to do some of that. Once again, we'll wait and see how, what, how it sh- shakes out. But um, I think that is that is a key to drive things in the right direction. And, and and we've done just the opposite for the last eight years, and we see the results. Final question, Hugh. Is it good for a president to use his platform to bully corporations to keep their their jobs here? Is that good? I, I'm asking. I don't know. Are you okay? Is that is that probably is, not? Is, does that once work? Again, 
once again, I'm in favor of getting less government involvement. That's major government involvement, right? And yeah, it may work in the short term, but I think we can't, this can't be a policy, right? This is one of the problems we had with the Obama administration. They were picking winners and losers, and they were deciding and not letting the market decide um, what companies were going to thrive and which ones weren't. And then what happens when you do that, you get a distorted view of, of the market. My concern is what Trump's doing will distort the market, probably in a different way, but it will distort the market nevertheless. The less we interfere with markets, always the better off we are. And that's always been the case. And that's true if it's you or I are making a deal between one another, or if it's two countries are making a deal with it. The principle is still exactly the same. Hugh Welchel, Executive Director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. You can check him out online, TIFWE, which is the abbreviation for Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. TIFWE.org is the website. Hugh, thanks for being with us tonight. We appreciate it very much. God bless, okay? Great. Great. I'm glad to be here. I will come back and have some reaction to what we just heard from Hugh tonight in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Drain the swamp, the Steve Day Show. Some thoughts, closing thoughts, gentlemen, and the conversation we just had with Hugh Welchel. Looking at the worldview behind trade, labor, etc. And I don't want to put words in Hugh's mouth, Todd, but I'm going to start with you because t- tackling this topic during Worldview Wednesday was your idea. It sounds to me like what Hugh, like, like Hugh has, is a mixture of optimism and concern. Optimism about reigning in the well, regulatory state, things of that nature. He's, he's optimistic about that. But he is concerned that about something we, I pointed out during the election. That there is a constituency of people that thought Obama was going to bend government to their needs, and he didn't. He bent it to the needs of other constituencies instead. So they, they went from voting for Obama twice to now voting for Trump under the, because they saw, a, a, they saw some authoritarian tendencies and thought, this guy will bend government to my constituency's needs. And it sounds like Hugh is, is very concerned about that. As he should be, because you're describing uh, utopian sensibilities. Yeah. What, what am I going uh, to get out of what is, And you mentioned, alluded to NAFTA and uh, Mexican notions of utopia. Uh, the, he's making clear that the utopia is free trade in and of itself. Whatever comes of it, that's the best you can get. And yes, there will be winners. And that, and yes, there will be losers. That is how this is supposed to operate. But within that, uh, over time, it's, it's very much a all boats will rise with the tide sensibility. But the minute you get beyond, you keep, you make more levers on the free trade machine and it ends up looking like a Rube Goldberg machine, then sooner or later, uh, many, far more people become losers, at least within the context of what they could be Mm -hmm. if the regulatory system was just minimized and or shut down. I think, Aaron, just as we've said to some of our fellow countrymen on the left, like we did this last hour talking about Bernie Sanders and health care, what you're advocating for more for is what caused your problems in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. 
we're saying the same thing to some of our friends amongst, amongst Trump's base. What you're advocating for, inserting government to pick winners and losers, and it's okay provided I'm on the winning team, this is why you are in this predicament. Because one day arises a pharaoh who knows not Joseph. Or you learn the lesson, it ain't no fun when the rabbit's got the gun. And once the precedent is set that government does indeed have this much control over your ability to draw a paycheck, someone who doesn't come from your constituency, who doesn't share your values, will use that precedent against you later on. That's not what you want. Right. And this is uh, this is such an important issue to talk about. And, uh, but really, at the end of the day, it is really simple. I mean, anytime you see a, um, a, a proposal like a tariff or tariff, uh, putting tariffs um, on Mexican imports or Chinese imports, whatever you want to say, really just have to ask yourself a question. Is this good for the flourishing of everybody in this country? And if the overwhelming decision is no, then it's, it's, it's something that we should reject. It's simple, but there are tentacles that make it so complicated in the John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace. 